This episode of Paper Team is brought to you by Roadmap Writers. Roadmap Writers is a screenwriting education and training platform for writers looking for a guided path to success. Programs are hosted by working industry executives and are designed to empower writers with actionable tools and insights to elevate their craft and cultivate industry relationships. Since 2016, Roadmap has helped more than 84 writers sign to representation and countless others get staffed, optioned, or sell their script. To learn more, visit roadmapwriters.com and use the code PAPERTEAM, all caps, all one word, to save $15. Roadmap Writers, the road to your screenwriting success starts here. Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter, underscore NJ Watson. And on this month's Paper Scraps, we will be answering your TV writing questions about contests, script readiness, and career detours, as well as look at some of the latest TV writing news about the WGA negotiations with the studios, speed binging, and a moving up the ladder. So let's get started. <laughs> All right, let's get into some paper team news. And first of all, we got an email from Adia Gordon, who we mentioned last month in our last Paper Scraps episode, who we were planning on, on seeing during our Austin Film Festival uh, meetup. Yeah, and she said, guys, so sorry to miss you at five. I won. It was incredible, and I got swept up in the rest of Saturday in a different current. So uh, what that is about is the fact that Gia, uh, not only having gotten into the CBS Writers Fellowship uh, not long before Austin Film Festival, but was also up as a finalist in uh, the screenwriting competition and then went ahead and won the entire thing. That is absolutely crazy. So a uh, massive congratulations to you. She also sent us like a photo of uh, the award at the, the dinner table. It was really <laughs> nice. cute. So we forgive you for not making the meetup. I think uh, I think that's a valid excuse. But next time when you win your Emmy, we will not accept that excuse. All right. This is a one and done thing. You're going to make a choice at that point. Exactly. Now, <laughs> moving on to some of the new Patreon subscribers that we got, we want to give these lovely people a shout out on the podcast. So huge thanks to Andy, David, Claudio, Joshua, and E. Levi's. So thank you so much for uh, believing in us and supporting us on our Patreon. And uh, as a reminder, if you want to subscribe to our Patreon, that's at paperteam.co slash Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and you'll get access to some cheat sheets and our monthly paper Patreon episode where we sort of uh, divulge the secrets of uh, what goes into making this very podcast. Yeah, we've also been putting up uh, exclusive Patreon questions from each of our interviews that no one else gets access to. So if you want to uh, get those little snippets of advice, uh, the only way you can do that is through our Patreon. On the Austin Film Festival note, we had uh, some other Twitter threads that we wanted to give a shout out to. Yeah. So as we mentioned the other week, Alex and I were at Austin for the film festival hosting a couple of panels. And then someone was nice enough to actually go ahead and live tweet our panels that she was in. Uh, her name is Sarah J. Egan. You can find her on Twitter. Uh, we'll put some links into these threads. And she just kind of went through and picked out a lot of the great advice that our panelists were giving, some of the questions that were being asked for both my panel, the Breaking Into TV, and Alex's panel, Structuring a Series. You can find the threads for both of those in our show notes and online. Absolutely. And we also wanted to give a shout out to Jennifer Dunn, who was a paper tease entrant with birdsong and she thanked us on a twitter for the amazing uh, feedback that we gave to her teaser yeah and funnily enough she said it was really great and timely because she's actually going to go shoot that teaser soon so that, that feedback was, was quite uh, interesting for her and she thought that it was interesting that we thought that sarah uh, her character might make a, a lawyer or a medical examiner because apparently when we meet her next she's with her probation officer so maybe <laughs> she went down a slightly darker path after all wow well, uh, on that note, uh, Paper Tease is changing one life after the other. <laughs> All right, let's get into some of your own TV running questions right now. 
Now, first up in your own TV on questions, we got an email from Cooper Smith who sent this following email to TV Colin. And actually, I believe Cooper was someone that we met at our paper team meetup in Austin and uh, had a good chat with him. So, hey, Cooper. So, Cooper says, I'm 25 and I'm really just trying to get a staffed writing job. I have a pilot done that I've entered into a few contests and now I'm working on a spec for American Gods, which I decided on after reading your 2019 list of speckable shows. I subscribed to TV Calling after listening to Paper Team and I'm just looking for any insights that can help me land a job. Do you actually have any insights on using contests to get staffed? That is a great question. And I would say that regarding contests to getting staffed, there is a missing step there and that's essentially what is going to get you staffed probably not the contest itself but some step in between so to me contests are mostly used for advertising of yourself whether that is sort of putting a script out there that's going to attract managers or perhaps showrunners on some level it's not about getting a staffing job off of a win it's more about okay this is a script that made a, let's say finalized a one aff and that's going to gain momentum and traction towards attracting maybe an agent or a manager that is then going to lead you down the path of meeting a showrunner and then getting staffed. Or similarly, you can use those opportunities during those contests to meet those high-level EPs that are going to be present during those contests. Right. There's no contest where the result of which is uh, getting staffed on a show. Even the network fellowships, there's no guarantee that you're actually going to be getting a job on a show. It's highly likely. But the reason that you get it is because of the relationships you build while you're in that program. You're meeting the executives, you're meeting showrunners, and uh, you're putting in that kind of FaceTime and getting known. So in a way, contests are kind of just like shooting up a flare that says, notice me. And you hope that someone, whether it's a manager or an executive or a producer or a showrunner, or even just another writer, mentor, whoever it happens to be, you kind of are drawing attention to yourself and your writing and building those relationships that will get you that job eventually. Absolutely. And I feel like there's sort of a two train of thought regarding contests and competitions. On the one hand, there's the whole thing of any publicity is good publicity in the sense of however well-known the competition is, if you get a win or if you're a finalist on it, then at least it sort of like pads that resume. You can talk about it in emails and use that as a way forward. Now that's valid, but I feel like there's only probably fewer than five, I would say, not counting the fellowships, actual contests that are linked to TV running that uh, I feel like we both would recommend. Obviously, Austin Film Festival is sort of like the big uh, temple. Final Draft is another big one. I'm sure we're missing some more like tracking board and so forth. But uh, just to go back to the point of those contests and those competitions, the point is not necessarily to get staffed off of it, but more more so to use that as leverage for your next project or your next point in your career. Because let's say you win final draft, you can use that to cold email some people and, uh, and perhaps meet some agents or representatives or even showrunners saying, hey, I placed on this uh, final draft competition. Uh, I'm actually the winner of this competition. And I saw that maybe five years ago you were on that list. And that's an excuse to meet some people in that way. These competitions are kind of like hunting grounds for young hungry managers who are looking for talent that hasn't been noticed, whether they're you know, not even in LA yet, or they're just kind of like coming up. And it's a good way for them to kind of pre-vet some material and vouch it so they don't have to siphon through everything. So, you know, getting that initial rep, manager, producer, someone who believes in you to put you out there to the town is going to be the best way to get that staffing job, Cooper. And our next email comes from Elise McGuigan, who says, Hi, Alex and Nick. Love the podcast. It gets me through my nine to five job listening to the episodes and dreaming of a world where writing is my work. I have a question about figuring out when your script is ready to send to managers. What factors you consider to determine your script's readiness? Are there a certain number of people you need to hear this is amazing from? Do you wait until your script receives some uh, sort of prize or honor? Do you get coverage on it? Or do you just trust your own instincts that it is ready? I would love to hear your thoughts on it. Thanks, Elise. 
Well, it's a great question. It's good that you're thinking about it in this way and not just being like, well, I finished the first draft of my script, better blast it out there. Considering when it's ready to be seen is a really good way of going about it. And I guess my answer to this would be a couple of things. I mean, we've talked about showing your script to people, getting that feedback, those layers of the reading onion that we talked about, you know, whether it's close friends who are writers, um, a writing group, people that you trust to give you that kind of honest feedback, that will help you one level of validation to give you an indication that it might be ready. Certainly submitting it to competitions and getting good feedback on that or coverage or whatever you happen to be doing is all one thing. But I would say you might know when it's ready, when it feels just like there's there's nothing else that can be done to it. This is the, the best thing you've ever written. You are getting those good responses back to it. You're really happy with it. You're excited about it. And you're not thinking, oh, you know what? I really need to actually just go back in and rework these characters and redo this whole thing but I can't be bothered, so I'm going to throw it out there. That's not a good way to go and show those managers. You really get one shot to put your best foot forward. So I think that internally, you will know when it's ready, when it feels ready. Yeah, I definitely co-sign that, uh, especially in the case where you're sending it out to managers or agents. You really, like you said, you only have one shot, so it better be good. So that's a great question to ask about that script readiness. Personally, I feel like on one element is definitely that reading onion. So we will link that episode back in the show notes, but I'm a big believer in getting continuous feedback throughout your writing process, not just on the draft, but really through the outline stage and even the pitching or the initial logline process, because essentially that is what TV writing is about is in the writer's room, you will be getting uh, continuous feedback on those pitches and, and the way you craft story is collectively, you don't just like give a draft to your showrunner unless you're maybe on Law and Order or Dick Wolf show, but nine times out of 10, you're going to be in a room and you can be crafting uh, that story creatively. So I'm a big believer in having sort of a, a similar approach to your writing and getting continuous feedback along the way. Now, the, the other side to uh, your question is sort of the ego boost. I feel like on some level, sometimes we do need that ego boost. So those contests, those competitions, getting some sort of external validation of someone who's not connected to us, I do feel is emotionally important on some level. You do want to get that pat on the back saying, all right, good job, you can continue. You may not know if it's ready at that point, but at least you know that like there's at least... Uh, a kernel of an idea that's uh, really connecting with people. Now, in terms of processing, if you yourself are ready to move forward with a script or stop writing on it, I would say listen to your body and mind because sometimes you do need a break from a script. Sometimes I feel like I personally feel like, all right, I'm at a point where I'm on this draft and this is really going to be my last pass. And that's mentally and in a way physically, I know that this is going to be my last pass of this draft because perhaps I've already done the five or six versions of it. I feel like I've already processed and heard different kinds of notes, not just macro, but micro scene dialogue. I know exactly sort of the issues that need to be fixed. I feel like that ties back to the whole reading onion aspect of as you get feedback, feedback across the way, you will internalize the elements that need work on those scripts. So I feel like it's sort of like an organic way of you realizing, oh, maybe I need to work on this character. Maybe I need to work on these specific issues that people are bumping against. But the point where you've addressed those notes and you're happy with the result and you're sort of getting micro notes that aren't really relevant. Let's say it's, you know, someone uh, commenting on a different word choice or uh, literally moving the commas around. At that point, then you should be moving on to another project. And to be honest, at the end of the day, there's no shame in taking a break from that script. Maybe you put it aside and you're exhausted and then maybe six months down the line, you're going to revisit it. You're going to reread it with fresh eyes and you realize, oh, maybe these were the other notes that people addressed that were not fully uh, developed. 
The flip side of all of this, like Alex says, is that there are diminishing returns after a certain number of drafts. You know, by the time you've taken your 10th pass at something, is it really getting that much better? And is it worth investing your time in trying to tweak those tiny little things? If you re- reach a point where the script is as good as it's going to get, if you decide that's good enough to start showing people, great. Maybe maybe it's not. Like Alex says, put it in a draw, come back to it another time, or just move on and write another script. Every, not every script you write is going to be great. Not everyone is going to be sample worthy and ready to kind of take you to those places. And the other thing I'll say about getting feedback from people is that you will get conflicting opinions. And it's very rare that you reach a point where every single person you show a script to is going to have overwhelmingly positive feedback and no one has a single bad thing to say about it. So you can't really expect to wait until that point until it's ready to show people there's a certain level of paralysis that you can get yourself into thinking that I've worked on the script for three years and it's still not ready. And I really just, I don't want to show anyone until it's ready. I think at some point you do need to kind of push it out there. And if it doesn't get you a manager or an agent, then you learn from that and you move on. Absolutely. I feel like you're hitting on something that's very important to underscore is just the idea of, you know, done is the enemy of good and good is the enemy of perfect in the sense of at some point you need to move forward with your life. You can't just be that one person that constantly talks about this one script that they're reworking and rewriting, especially in TV when every script you write is essentially a calling card. And so you want to have as many calling cards as possible. So that way you can sort of shoot your shot whenever possible. On some level, it doesn't need to be perfect. It needs to be really good and really compelling. And despite everything we've been saying, uh, throughout the history of this podcast. On some level, it just needs to be a well-told story and well-executed. And I know that's a high bar to clear, but uh, I don't think it's about sort of having this perfect screenplay, you know, that sits neatly on my screen and is absolutely perfect. It's more about the experience that you're going to be providing. And so I feel like that's something that only you can really feel in your gut. Yeah. And at these lower levels, people just want to see potential in your writing. They want to see the areas that you're good at. And there are going to be areas that you're not quite as good at. And that's fine, especially if you're working with somebody like a manager who is going to help you improve on those areas. Or even if you're something like a staff writer, where you're going to learn through the process, like every single aspect of it doesn't need to be perfect. As long as the things that are good in there are really good. Next up, we actually got a comment from Yael Stickler, who left us an email about our very first episode that was PTO1 that was all about moving to LA. I think we recorded this over three years ago now. So he was asking a little bit of an update on the episode. So here is what he had to say. DL says, I'm wondering if you still feel so strongly about living in LA to operate as a TV writer. Have TV writing gigs started to become more modern in terms of using, you know, modern communications technologies? Uh, Relocating is a considerable risk and expense, not to mention that LA is not the most attractive place in many respects. Southern California, like many places, has its share of challenges and problems. That does not even take into account that there are natural challenges to trying to live there. You make an interesting point early on in this episode about how writing feature films may provide a person more flexibility in terms of where they live work. But if I just want to sell a pilot and a Bible, wouldn't it be possible to work remotely via Skype or some other digital conferencing tech? I'd be interested in your opinion on this. Right. I mean, there's, there's a lot to unpack here. Uh, first of all, in terms of the concept of moving to LA, I, I still believe very strongly that you need to be in LA if you want to be an active TV writer. Now, I would say the breakdown is maybe, let's say, 80-20 in terms of LA and New York, with the 20 being New York and mostly comedy rooms. But with that said, I would say that unless you're sort of a, a Dick Wolf or Aaron Sorgan, a higher level a feature writer, then you will need to be in LA to be a working TV writer because that's where the writer's rooms are. Now, to the other point, 
point. I mean, the reality is that, especially when you're starting out, uh, unless you're a really well-known uh, creative, if you have a feature or you're a really well-known author or playwright, you are just unlikely to be selling a show, uh, especially uh, from the backyard of, uh, let's say, Ohio or Montana, wherever you are. I feel like that's like something that people, I feel like they, they underestimate the difficulty of selling a show to begin with. It's not something that you start off doing. It's something that you end up doing. Yeah, I think if you want to break in as a TV writer, you need to be here not only to build those relationships and that network, they're going to get you the job in the first place, but also to physically be taking those meetings and getting in those rooms that are located here. You know, even people who are from another country, another state, they will fly in and they will spend 20 weeks in a room or whatever it is when they get that job. It's really, there's no option to Skype into a writer's room. Unfortunately, for those people that you know, it might be harder for whatever reason, it's just the reality of it. Now, I, I know a number of people who have come from internationally and have sold projects, have worked on shows, whatever it happens to be. And the way that they've done that is by coming to LA for periods of time, whether it's a couple of weeks, a couple of months, taking those meetings, being there, making those connections and putting themselves in the place where they can have that opportunity. And if they get the job, then they come and they work there for that period. And even if they go back home later, they are still physically in LA. Right. I also know a lot of those international people. And the reality is that even though you may be living in LA in some capacity, it may not be the place that is going to define your life. And I feel like the same holds true for some writers' rooms. I know a lot of people also who, for a very limited amount of time, they're going to be moving or living in New York for that one 12 week writer's room. There's no, it's not a huge deal uh, to be living in a place for uh, X amount of weeks. But you got to remember that the reason why they got there in the first place is because they have those connections that are being built. And the truth is that even though you may be on some level, you could, uh, I guess, communicate with people and meet people online through Skype, through Twitter, what have you there's nothing that's going to replace the good old, like, let's grab a drink at this place, or let's grab a coffee, or let's meet in your office and talk for an hour about this very specific show that you're running, or what have you. And that's just the organic way that people, quote-unquote, network. That's just the way you build that community that is then going to vouch for you. Because even though you may have uh, some amazing scripts, it all comes down to relationships. That's how this business works. That's how this business is built on. It's not just the writing, it's the relationship part. And I think that's something that a lot of people underestimate and undervalue. And funnily enough, I have actually Skyped into a writer's room before. Now, it was a, like a two or three day writer's summit, basically. And it was taking place in Australia on a project that I was writing. And, you know, I wanted to be a part of, you know, what's going on in the room with these writers who were helping break the story and outline it for me to write the pilot. But it's really hard, you know, like it's hard to hear people pitching in the room when you're sitting there on a computer laptop with a terrible microphone and speakers. And basically I would just kind of Skype in for an hour or two at a time and they would download me on everything that had happened in the room. And I would give my feedback and thoughts on that. And they would kind of pitch things to me and whatever, but it's, it's really nothing like being in an actual writer's room and it's not conducive at all to that creative process. So unless you're already somebody who is a higher level writer or creator or EP or something who has the ability to kind of just stop in and get a download because I'm going to be part of another part of the process. You, you can't expect to be a contributing staff writer in a room over the phone or over Skype or whatever it happens to be. Right. It's a bit like being invited at a wedding and you're in the Skype table. Happy endings of the whole episode about that. It's not really conducive to creativity. You can't really interact with people. It's very challenging. I will say also that 
at the end of the day, it also comes back to your own finances. Is it cheaper for you to live in LA or is it cheaper for you to fly back and forth between cities? I think like that's something to keep in mind as well. Personally, I'm going to go back to uh, France uh, next month and I'll be taking meetings there. And I am very strategic about the places I want to meet at because it's not just about places uh, in Paris. As much as I, you know, I lived in Paris, I have family there. I'd love to work there at least temporarily. But I know that if I'm only meeting at places that only exist in Paris, that's going to be very challenging because I know that if they, they want me for some creative pursuit, then that, that I'll be having to fly back to Paris on a regular basis, which is very challenging. Now, on the flip side, I can use the opportunity that I'm in Paris to meet places that are both in LA and Paris. And I think that's very strategic on myself to be thinking of proactively, okay, if I'm meeting with these people in Paris and we're hitting it off, then regardless of where I live, whether it's in Paris or in LA, I can use those connections and those relationships to build a goodwill with those people. And maybe down the line when they have a project, whether it's in Paris or in LA, they have the connections there to get me there. So I feel like that's another element to think about is just like strategically, what is the best way for you to make those connections where you're not present physically? Yeah. A friend of mine from the UK actually just sold a show to Netflix. And the way that he did that was by having a, a bunch of writing experience in the UK on an animated show that happened to have a room there. He'd been working with a comedy group for like 10 years that had done festivals, they'd done TV spots, they'd done whatever. And he'd gotten himself known to these people. And then he had flown back and forth from the UK to LA, pitching this show, working with an artist, developing it for Netflix until the point where they made that decision that they wanted to do it. And then they got him a visa and they've flown him in. And now he's going to be living here while he runs this show. You know, it's not as simple as you send in a pitch, they love it, they buy it, they hand you a million dollars and you never see them again. You know, presumably as a writer, you want to be involved in your project. So if if the best case scenario does happen and you sell a project, you're still going to have to be here to run the room because that's where the network is and that's where the studio and everything else. Right. And to that point that you just brought uh, the example you just mentioned, it ties back to something I said earlier in in terms of that person that you brought up who sold a show that person still had a track record. Uh, They had a history of creative uh, pursuits and uh, they were essentially vouched for directly or indirectly by other people in the places they come from. So if you are that person, and uh, again, you know, whether it's like a playwright or someone who's been on Broadway or someone who's like a really famous author, they're going to have more leverage to be pitching those shows. That's why, you know, Nick Pizzolatto and a lot of those people are getting shows. It's because they have that track record, whether on the feature side or on the theater side, to use those uh, recommendations. But if you're just starting out, that's going to be really tricky. That's, again, it goes back to why you need to be physically in the places where you can be able to build those relationships. And last but not least, we have an email from Jacqueline Revere who says, before moving to LA, I worked as a writer's assistant in New York. My career took a turn when I had a family tragedy. I quickly moved home to LA to care for them. I've recently gone out for writing assistant and assistant showrunner jobs. The note I consistently get back is that I interview well, I am well-liked as a person, but I have little writer's assistant experience. Well, I've been caregiving full-time for three years. I am 33 and still fairly young, but I am afraid that these are crucial years in my career and cannot help but think that I am losing ground because of my life circumstances. Do you have any advice on how I can get out of this rut or prove that I have the experience needed to be a solid assistant? Sincerely, Stuck. Yeah, that's a really hard question. And it seems like a difficult situation that you find yourself in at this point in time. There's always going to be those issues with 
assistant jobs, especially things like writer's assistant jobs where you're expected to stay up and work long nights in the room, work weekends, all that kind of thing. When you have other responsibilities in your life, especially if you're coming into something slightly later in life, meaning that you're not just coming straight out of film school in your early 20s, you're not living with your parents, any of that kind of thing. If you have people to care for, if you have children, if you have people to look after, some of those jobs are either going to be very hard to balance and juggle with those responsibilities, or they're just not going to be compatible at all. And you might give it a shot, but... Unfortunately, I think sometimes those things can be held against you consciously or subconsciously by employers. You know, maybe they do want some young kid straight out of film school who's going to stay up 24 hours writing down the notes and that kind of thing. You know, it's it's a hard situation to find yourself in. Yeah, I definitely concur. I mean, it is such a, a difficult uh, a struggle uh, for many reasons. You know, it, it is true that ageism is a thing in LA and, and in this industry. So it's hard to really be prescriptive about, oh, this is what you should be doing to put yourself out there and getting those assistant jobs. Because the best thing you can do is just leveraging the experience that you have, both as, as a writer's assistant, but also your life experiences in your resume and in the way you're pitching yourself when you're getting those meetings. And just saying, I may not have practical working writer's assistant experience in the traditional sense, but I've been doing these X, Y, Z things that are essentially akin to being a writer's assistant. And also, uh, because I've been a caregiver for three years, I can handle those hours. This has been my life. I'm someone who is very dedicated to uh, their craft and their work, as my story can attest, and, and so forth. So there's ways of pitching yourself that are more about diminishing the negative side and really emphasizing the positive elements that you can bring to the table. And I will also say that it is not all or nothing, right? It's not a zero-sum game where you have to always bank on being a writer's assistant or a shortener's assistant to be staffed because there's so few jobs to begin with that it's really, really difficult to be staffed on that level. And I feel like because of your life experience, because of everything you're bringing to the table as a person, there is definitely an opportunity on the staffing side to really go out there and uh, whether you're meeting reps or uh, tackling it in your own writing, obviously, just showing uh, that life experience and, and really showing the value that you have as a creative to be staffed, not just you know as a writer assistant, but really maybe to a staff writer, uh, because that's essentially how you shape your narrative. What you bring to the table is all, it's not really baggage as much as, as it is the you know life stories that you can bring in the room and really talk about. And so when you're uh, going out for staffing or when you're going out for writer's assistant, maybe you may not have the sort of the practical work experience, but you're definitely bringing some life experiences that are valuable in the room. Yeah. So I would offer a counterpoint to Alex's earlier advice about incorporating how your life experience makes you good for a writer's assistant role. And I would suggest that another strategy, and I'm not saying which one is correct or not, would be to essentially not mention that aspect at all so that there is no doubt in their minds that, well, is she going to be available to do these hours and that kind of thing? Because realistically, if you're doing your job and you're doing it well, it shouldn't impact that. So it might not be something that you need to bring up as part of your discussion. You can focus on other things. You can focus on your writer's experience in New York. I know a lot of people who have gone for script coordinator jobs, writer's assistant jobs, and they've had to do things like take off their wedding ring, take off their engagement ring, not mention the fact that they have a wedding coming up in order to get these jobs because they want these people to believe that they are fully available as possible. And then once they have them, then they have that leverage to negotiate. Well, I need to leave a little bit early this night because I need to go take my mom to the doctor's appointment and whatever it happens to be. So that is another way you could potentially approach it. I know it may feel a little bit dishonest or something, but really they shouldn't be keeping you out of this job because of that anyway. So the less leverage you can give them to hold that against you, the better. I think what Alex says in regards to using that life experience in your writing is perfectly on track. And I think that that's exactly what you probably want to be doing because writer's assistant isn't the only path to being a writer. And it sounds like you have some incredible emotional experiences to draw upon. And if you write 
an incredible pilot or feature based on those experiences and putting yourself into that and making it relatable, I have no doubt that that would get you showrunner meetings as a writer and that might get you work. Absolutely. And I feel like to go back to your earlier point, even though the strategy may be to hide or sort of hide the ball on the, the caregiving aspect, my advice wasn't necessarily, oh, all right, let me just talk about caregiving for an hour. It's not that. It's more about what I said regarding shaping your narrative in the same way that when you are in a showrunner meeting or you're in a general meeting, you're sort of talking about your life and why you're a good writer. The same holds true when you are in those meetings being a writer's assistant, because the bump that you're mentioning is just the little writer's assistant experience that you have. So it is also, I agree, about emphasizing that writer's assistant experience in New York. It's more about, oh, the classic question they're going to ask you probably is, oh, what have you been doing for three years? Uh, where have you been? And so even though it may not be, oh, I've been caring for my mother for three years, it can also be more, okay, I've done these different things that are akin to being a writer's assistant, not literally sitting down taking notes, but I can handle it on an emotional basis. I've done it before in different forms. And I think those are the experiences you can uh, highlight because again, it's about shaping your narrative. It's about shaping the way you're being perceived. And as we all know, perception becomes reality. Totally. You know, if you volunteered for a charity, being a, a secretary or a treasurer, if you've done, you know, weekend jobs, administration, whatever it happens to be, you can always find those ways to be like, this is how it's applicable to being a writer's assistant, just like you said. All right, let's get into some TV writing news. And first of all, the WGA recently announced the negotiating committee for the upcoming NBA negotiations with a studio that is going to happen in a few months from now, in 2020. Yeah, that's right. So David Young will be serving as the Guild's chief negotiator with Michelle Mulroney, Sean Ryan, and Betsy Thomas serving as co-chairs. And then there is a, a great list of people who are going to be backing them up as part of the negotiating committee, including uh, some familiar faces and names who are friends of ours and have been guests on the podcast, like Liz Elper and Francesca Butler, as well as some people who are probably well-known in the wider world, like uh, John August of uh, you know Script Notes. And you can see the full list up on the Guild's website there and also posted around the internet. Absolutely. I'm personally very excited to see uh, so many familiar faces on that list. List. I was talking to Frankie uh, the other day about that fear mongering that uh, a bunch of uh, trades are doing. And I feel like some agencies are also sort of perpetrating this idea that maybe maybe we're going to be going on strike in uh, in six months. And uh, the truth is that this is like, we're way too early to even think about striking. So it's really just almost like fear-mongering and, and really baiting people into uh, doing the self-fulfilling prophecy of, oh, are we going to be striking? And that's going to cause paranoia in the guild and uh, dissent in the ranks. Guys, guys, chill out. This is not what's happening. Take a deep breath. Uh, we'll be fine. Right. They haven't even begun negotiating. They literally just announced who's on the committee. There's no way that they can already be talks about a strike. So everybody just take a chill pill and it's going to be fine. If the guild is striking, let me tell you, paper team will be striking as well. <laughs> we'll be pausing the podcast and talking about uh, paper. It's going to be about Dunder Mifflin. Yes. We're going to have 500 count double play. Uh, mm. Great. Now, another uh, little uh, news item relating slightly to TV writing that uh, recently happened was Netflix announced that it's testing something called speed binging, which is, I mean, it's just a weird way of just saying they're adding a feature to their platform where you can change the speed of the way you're watching the shows. It could be, I think it's, it goes up to 1.5x. And personally, this is going to be kind of a hot take, but I've been doing double speed on some content, especially on scripted content for quite a while. I, I was using VLC you know the platform there's actually uh, chrome extensions and firefox extensions that they can use that add sort of that speed feature to netflix youtube hulu amazon and so forth so i've actually been sort of the i know this is kind of a heresy to say on the tv and podcast but some content i have been watching at 1.5x or 2x when it was something that did not necessitate my full mental acuity 
Yeah, I could see that working for unscripted content or things that you just kind of want. like I do it all the time with podcasts and it works just fine, but that's not those things aren't being crafted for the cinematic experience and the pacing, the style that a lot of TV shows and movies are. And so I think there has been quite a lot of outrage from the the community at wide people like Judd Apatow, Aaron Paul, um, <clears throat> a lot of people have commented on Twitter saying this seems like a terrible idea. Don't mess with the way that like art is presented. It reminds me a lot of the whole issue with the uh, TVs and the like sports mode that they get turned on, and mm-hmm. basically like creates frames that don't yeah. exist and turns it into something that the DP and the director never wanted it to look like. And I consider this a similar thing in terms of like pacing and whatever. Like I think Netflix kind of tried to defend it by saying, well, some people just you know want to rewatch their favorite scene again, or you know some people want to play it a little bit slower because their English isn't their first language. And so I understand those applications, but I do think it's in a, in a broader sense a slippery slope to start kind of like being like let's just watch everything at two times speed and without the then being the intention of the artists yeah i mean i'm definitely someone who's very uh, let's just say particular about the way i watch things i've, uh, I've been on the record uh, talking about uh, how i don't want to watch tv on my phone that's absurd especially because of that cinematic experience i have a screen at home that's just about you know it's, it's not just to watch like tv linear tv but it's really to quote-unquote project the content that should be seen on the big screen like something like breaking bad or whatnot it was more to do with, I think, there's no harm in giving sort of a feature that's, uh, especially because it's up to 1.5x, which I don't think like really ruins the experience. Uh, on some shows that may not be, you know, cinematic in the same sense as Breaking Bad, I feel like a lot of content doesn't need to be watched on the big picture. I feel like, especially when you look at, uh, well, I don't want to give like a judgment on what shows should and shouldn't be watched this way. But personally, I always say like some unscripted content I really, like Survivor, for example, I'm never going to watch on 2x. It's something that's like really beautiful and cinematic. And then there's really a lot of storytelling going on. So I really want to watch that the way it's intended. But if there's something like, I mean, as much as I, I love a Queer Eye, for example, like, I mean, the Queer Eye in Japan season, which I loved, I did watch it. I think it was 1.5x just because, you know, it's not, I mean, you, you get what they're doing and it's like fun and then you can do laundry in front of it. Like, if it's laundry TV, essentially, I'm not going to necessarily be uh, as uh, particular by the way I watch something. Yeah, I guess ultimately it is up to each individual person if people want to watch it on a faster speed and that's how they enjoy it, then good for them. And if they want to watch it how it's intended to be watched, then good for them too. I guess, you know, it's not like we're mandating that everyone has to watch it faster or slower. And then uh, next time it's going to be like a clockwork orange experience where you have to keep your eyes open at all times to uh, watch this specific show. And the next piece of TV writing news, I think we would be remiss to not discuss uh, Game of Thrones and um, the creators and uh, some of the the prequel and spinoff series that have been going on. There's been a bunch of news about that recently. In particular, one of the Game of Thrones prequels, which I think was basically kind of thousands of years ago when the first man and the White Walkers and whatever has been killed. You know, the pilot was up and then the series is not going forward. It was the one uh, that Jane Goldman was writing, Naomi Watts was starring in. So that one uh, has, has bitten the dust. Yeah, I was a little bit surprised when I learned the news but as soon as i heard that they were gonna cancel that pilot i knew that because of hbo max they were gonna pick up the other one which they did ultimately it was ryan condal's uh, show that's about the house of the dragon it's not really just about the targets it's before the fall but in any case it's interesting to see that hbo max knows the value of that ip and so they, they were gonna milk it one way or the other but uh, just to go back to the aff of it all i mean my panel at uh, austin the structuring our series panel was happening at the same time as the Benioff and Weiss panel in the other room. So uh, when we got out of it, it was sort of like, oh, it went viral. What 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 went viral? Oh, 
what they were saying on that panel went viral. Uh, and that created a whole conversation about, uh, I, th- I think they were just trying to be, trying to relate to the common man or common woman in the audience being like, oh, we're just like you. We're, we didn't really know what we were doing. We're handed like uh, $150 million and we didn't have that much experience. You know, the rest is history. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to get too much into the commenting of that, but uh, it's all out on the internet for you to see and make up your own mind about. And speaking of uh, Twitter, uh, I did want to highlight an awesome uh, little Twitter thread by uh, my good friend Monica Belitsky, who uh, mentioned uh, sort of the, the questions that she was asking herself and asking other people regarding why so many people can be stuck as a writer's assistant without moving up. And she sort of found a pattern uh, in terms of sort of the the issues that people were bumping against. Uh, some of them were just, can this person articulate in a very specific way what they're writing? Does their sort of the, the writing samples that they provide, do they reflect who they are as a writer and also as a person? Or are they targeting the right people? Is there a very specific point of view? All those questions in this thread uh, will be linked in the show notes. I, I just think this is actually a list of, I think it was like a dozen questions. I would argue anybody who's like a lower level person who's someone who's like stuck in this routine of, uh, am I getting staffed? Am I not getting staffed? Am I stuck in the writer's assistant position or support staff position? Those are questions you should be asking yourself proactively. And so she did a really cool list that I'll link in the show notes. And last but not least, there's a little bit of a rumor that there may be a Friends reboot going on. Uh, well, what actually happened was that I think Jennifer Aniston and Ellen said that that the six friends are working on a little bit of a project. We can all dance now and be hit by a copyright lawsuit. Ooh. This is not working as well as intended. That, that was the remix. <laughs> that was the remix. Uh, no, I mean, my hot take is actually they're working on a Super Bowl commercial. I have no idea what they're working on, but I don't see anything else because I don't think there's actually a Friends reboot happening. I don't think there's an actual like Friends reunion piece of content that's happening. That doesn't really make sense with the timing. The most that makes sense to me is just like a Super Bowl ad that uh, some company paid a million to millions of dollars just to get all six friends back together. Mm-hmm. Wasn't that how Will and Grace reboot started or something oh interesting yeah maybe i feel like there's definitely something to so that maybe idea. once it happens you never know and everyone's always talking about these reboots of friends and the office and all these classic series and you know you never really believe it until you see it but i will say that apparently they dug up the friends fountain at the warner brothers ranch and that's no longer there anymore so i don't know what they're going to be dancing oh, in front of CG oh, uh, green screen or uh you know that sort of like butterfly la wall tag that everybody <laughs> yeah. has in their dating profile that's like basically what they're going to be doing <laughs> it's like modern friends in la but like at the age they are and they're just like <laughs> we're just a couple of mid 50 somethings trying to make it in the big city oh god <laughs> That's basically what Joy the TV show was. Oh, good. <laughs> I think that's a wrap on this Paper Scraps episode. Uh, but before we go, don't forget that we are now on Patreon. So if you enjoy this episode, please consider supporting Paper Team via our Patreon page at paperteam.co slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You'll get access to our Paper Patreon podcast, Cheat Sheets, as well as a, a dedicated Paper Tease slot just for our Patreon supporters for next year's Paper Tease session that's coming up in a, essentially a month from now uh, in terms of recording time. So you can get Get on this at babyteam.co slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. So thanks as always to our listeners for taking the time to tune in. You can get all the show notes for this episode at papertmaco slash 160. And as always, I'm on Twitter at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. If you have any thoughts, feedback, ideas for future episodes, you can send them to ask at papertmaco. And next week, I'm so excited because we're joined by my good friend April She and Rashi Jaffrey, who will be talking about one of our favorite topics, which is sort of a talk about the, the writer's mindset and a positive framing, which may sound a bit hippy dippy, but it's a really interesting conversation that we had about that topic. Yeah, I think it's a really great episode and you're going to enjoy it. So tune in then for that. See you then.